It is the week of Monday, November 22nd, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we'll be talking about UFC 268 pay-per-view buys again, because we do have some numbers in from the Sports Business Journal, and I may have some crow to eat. Though not exactly, but kind of. We'll, we'll break it down. Then we've got to talk about Piper Sandler valuing the UFC at $9.2 billion. Just Five years ago, in 2016, it was valued at $4 billion when Endeavor bought a majority stake. It has now more than doubled. We'll break down what that means, as well as the ramification if anything were to go wrong with the UFC at this point, aka the antitrust lawsuit. I'm going to break all of that down. Then we've got to have a favorite conversation of mine about misinformation on the business side of MMA. A Twitter post or Instagram post, I forget which, either way, kind of went a little bit viral in the MMA community. Uh, stated that the entire main card of UFC 268 made less than Caleb Plant, who fought Canelo Alvarez same night. And while that is true, and and we'll break down that a little bit more, uh, the numbers out there are false. So we're going to have a chat about that. And lastly, to wrap this one up, we've got a real special treat in that someone has dug up some old messages that former UFC matchmaker Joe Silva used to send into the World Wrestling Observer news Newsletter, or just Wrestler Observing Newsletter, whatever Dave Meltzer runs. Uh, and, and they're quite insightful. If you look at some of the things that he sent in before he became matchmaker for the UFC and then promptly exited following the sale of the UFC back, in 2016. So with that all in mind, got timestamps at the bottom. Going to be a little bit of a shorter one this time around. Happy holidays to those of you who celebrate Thanksgiving. And let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about here is I have to eat a little bit of crow because we did get UFC 268 pay-per-view numbers just very recently this week. Um, And turns out that the pay-per-view did 700k buys domestically so that means through espn plus worldwide figure is going to be higher than that that's reported from aaron bronstetter who got the information from john orland over at the sports business journal so that is a source that i do trust so i want to preface this by saying i did say in the last video that i was making an estimate and that's what i do here i am wrong sometimes i'm not infallible I believe I ended up with 400K. I said 400, 500K, but I think I ended up on the lower side, 400K. So I was off by almost half. Yeah. Uh, my reasoning, again, for that was because of Disney not mentioning the pay-per-view buys during their earnings call, especially when they were having such a rough earnings call. And, you know, some great conversation in the youtube comments i want to give a shout out to everybody who commented on the video for last week great discussion great questions being asked i mean that's that's what i love to talk about what i'm here for so um keep it civil i saw i got a little wonky places but i mean please keep it civil we're you know uh but yeah it's one of those things where in this case i was wrong but i did say i didn't think it did spectacular and i was right in that regard Now, some of you are going to be saying, well, that's like the third or fourth highest pay-per-view of the year. What are you talking about? Didn't do spectacular. Well, it did did well. Yes, it it did. You could say it did very well. I wouldn't argue that because it's right on that 700 mark. Um, It did very well. It did very well in terms of other pay-per-view buys, yes. But it wasn't a blockbuster like Usman Mazdal won, right, that broke a million buys, or McGregor's that have broken a million buys, um, or Adesanya, who's been 800K and above. It wasn't that level. It was close to Adesanya, but still not a blockbuster. And I think that's probably part of the reason Disney didn't tout the numbers as much, is that they were only going to reveal it if it was going to be a million plus or near a million, right? If you're in the 800, 900K range, my guess is you mentioned that. 700 people will point out, well, that's good, but you know, there have been a couple of those and it's good relative to other pay-per-view buys, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not necessarily something that your broadcast partner is going to shout about. And, And I'm also assuming it's probably a little bit less than what, you know, Dana White and co were hoping for. Um, you know, the rivalry between Covington and Usman is, is a great storyline, a lot of drama, a lot of plenty of, you know, things to sink your teeth into if you're a casual fan. 
but I think they were kind of hoping that Usman was going to elevate things to an Adesanya or higher level, and that didn't really occur here. Also, keep in mind, Usman is the A-side here by far. Ever since he beat Masvidal, he's taken some of that shine that Masvidal got from Diaz, the star, star power transfership that we've talked about on the show many, many times, where if you are a big star and then you lose to no name or someone that is kind of recognized, doesn't matter which, your star power transfers over. Best example of that is Holly Holm beating Ronda Rousey and... You know, she's still in commercials. She's still getting main events. She still pulls better numbers than most of the other people in any women's division. Better than Nunez in some cases. In a lot of cases, actually, that we have data points for. Um, So, I mean, that right there, you know, tells you about that star power transfership. And and Usman is clearly still drawing, which is good. That's very good for the UFC. Uh, But you did have a compelling storyline here with Covington. You thought maybe the bad blood would kind of push this one over the top, but it really didn't, right? This did as much as Usman versus Masvidal 2. And that probably is either a knock on Covington's drawing power, which we know historically has not been that great, um, or it's a knock on the fact that this is really Usman's ceiling is around that 700K buy range. Because remember... UFC 245, the number we have from that was 300K. That was Covington versus Usman 1, which still had plenty of bad blood, still had plenty of buildup. It wasn't a renewed rivalry, right, that got this to 700K buys. It's Usman beating Masvidal, showcasing his skills. You know, it makes sense. He's been a dominant champion. He's had those those two convergence of factors where he's been dominant and he's been able to beat people with existing star power. I would say he's not reaching that Izzy level or higher because he's, his personality is shining through, but it's not the same type of vibe, right? I don't know that he has that X factor to reach the next level. We'll see. He'll continue to get more chances as he fights more people, as he is more dominant. He, I will say that his on-the-mic skills, so to speak, have improved quite a bit, especially from when we first saw him. Uh, so... There's still plenty of, you know, time for him to keep building up his resume and lifting that number higher. But right now, this might be his ceiling. It's hard to say because this was a very compelling storyline going into this. And it didn't really move the needle any more than the rematch between Masvidal. And you could look at that again a different way and say, oh, well, Masvidal, you know, is a bigger name star and even getting a second chance, just like McGregor after he's lost and he's still fighting that, you know, creates this buzz. That's true. It's very possible that could be the case. I haven't seen the other metrics to point it that way. Again, that's why I thought we were in the 400, 500K range to begin with. But it's possible that, you know, Usman and Covington's beef was as interesting to the casual fans as seeing Masvidal get another shot at Usman on a quote-unquote full camp, even though it wasn't a full camp. But... That all being said, um, yeah, I, I was wrong here. It happens. It, it happens. I wasn't completely wrong because it was not a blockbuster, but it was. I was on the wrong end of the spectrum of what I thought it was going to be. I honestly can't remember if I said about 700K would be the max. I want to say I did, but you can call me out on that if I, if I didn't say that. But um, Yeah, I mean, it's on the wrong end of the spectrum, which is good because that means that a lot of people saw Usman go out there and fight a really fun fight with Covington. Um, A lot of people get to be exposed to new athletes and stars. That's a good, good sign for the business and for the overall sport. You need more people, despite the UFC getting these fixed revenue models together so that they don't need as many stars to bring in the variable revenue and then keep their numbers up for the sport to continue to grow and for more people to be interested in MMA, you have to get more people watching. So I, for one, am very happy I was wrong here and that Usman is drawing bigger numbers. Uh, At this point, I would say he's consistently drawing above most anyone else outside of Izzy. Um, John Jones is still a question mark. We really haven't seen him Uh, back for a while, especially post-COVID bump and all of that stuff. So 
I would really love to see his numbers, but I Usman might be able to draw a little bit more than John at this point. Um, they're all kind of in that same bracket, John, uh, John Jones, Usman, and Izzy, where they're drawing co- seemingly consistently in the 500 to 700k range um, or higher. Izzy's, Izzy's case closer to 800k, uh, and then you've got you know the megastars like McGregor uh, and Habib if he were to ever come back. Although of course he won't, uh, but. You know, it's going to be interesting to see what Poirier is able to do because that, again, is another big-time opportunity. And it's going to be interesting to see how Masvidal does if he's ever headlining another card because now he's lost two in a row. I firmly believe that $1.3 million was Masvidal's, you know, meteoric run, getting involved with other people that he did. But then he loses twice back-to-back. I'm not sure he's going to be able to pull really great numbers. We'll see. I think those are the kind of stars of company right now though right everyone i just mentioned is probably the biggest drawing power i can't think of anyone else off the top of my head who's really drawing at that level um will be interesting to see what happens with gone and nganu but i really don't i think nganu's window kind of passed when he lost to stipe in the way that he did so he could still get there but i think he'd have to have a dominant showing over gone uh, Gone has been popular within the MMA community. I haven't necessarily seen that translate into buys, though. We'll see. I mean, very well could, especially against Nganu. So a couple of names out there, but still, that that's kind of the pile of, of people that are going to bring new faces to the sport. Because remember, we all live, if you're watching this show especially, we live in this hardcore MMA bubble. And some of the things that were asked in the comments... And a couple of comments were, you know, I'm a pro fighter. Uh, I forget who said that, but shout out to you, who was like, you know, and I thought there was way more interest. And, you know, even the back and forth I had with a couple of people in the comments were, you know, how can that be? You know, got to remember, we live in a bubble here in regards to you can forget just how much information about MMA, you know, compared to a true casual fan. Most casual fans you could list off names like Donald Cerrone or Francis Ngannou or even Jorge Masvidal. And they're like, who's that? Or, oh, I, thought, I think I saw that guy on ESPN once or what? Like, and, and that's the people that they have to attract is you have to be a big enough name and have enough interest that you're going to get somebody who doesn't watch UFC except for one, one fight. Same with boxing, right? I know some of you guys are like me where you get excited about big boxing fights. You're mostly MMA, but occasionally you watch a big boxing fight. Maybe maybe Canelo versus Plant. That's a great example where, oh, I'm a big Canelo guy and this is an actual test for him. Okay, like I'm going to watch. Or Tyson Fury versus uh, Anthony Joshua, you know? Or sorry, not Anthony Joshua, if only. <laughs> um, Tyson Fury versus uh, Deontay Wilder, right? That had a lot of hype outside of just boxing to it. I know it got some of the MMA people into it. Did it get completely casual fans? That I don't know. It's tough. It is tough. But that's also why, you know, you've got Jake Paul drawing the way he does, right? Attracting a casual, truly casual audience is very hard to do. And those guys are important for the sport overall. But yeah, in terms of actual buys, I was wrong on this one. And not completely wrong, but wrong nonetheless. And yeah, it it will be interesting to see how Usman continues to do. And especially when UFC 269 happens to see what Poirier is able to bring. But 700k buys, for those of you that thought it was, was pretty high... Again, it wasn't a blowout, wasn't a million, wasn't Izzy level at 800, but it's close. So you were more right than I was. There you have it. All right, next thing I want to talk about is Piper Sandler, an investment bank firm, has raised its target share price of Endeavor from $33 to $35, but also has valued the UFC at $9.2 billion. So back in 2016, when Endeavor bought the majority shares of the UFC 51% and it was a huge it was all over the no- news all this stuff right um, huge deal the UFC was then valued at 4 billion according to Piper Sandler we are now more than double that 
9.2 billion in a five-year span. That's crazy. It's incredible growth, right? Especially for a sports property. And I think there's a lot to do with that. Again, I think COVID was actually a giant boon for the UFC being the only pro sport out there that was able to have events, you know, for several weeks, right? Uh, For UFC 249, being able to do that when all other professional sports were pretty much shut down. I think that garnered a lot more interest in the sport than would have happened otherwise. Um, And then they were consistently on for a long time, right? That makes a giant difference. That really, if you're the only option for a lot of people to watch, especially sports fanatics who are like craving football or basketball, and they're just like, this sucks. I got nothing on. Oh, hey, there's a fight. Sure. I'm in the middle of a global pandemic. Why not? We'll go ahead and watch the fight. You had a lot of celebrities, you know, endorsing the fights because I'm sure they were also in the same position. So, you know, it's you have a COVID bump that is still there. Again, it's lost some of its fuel, but there were a lot of new fans that came in and I think stayed because of that. But beyond that, you also have continual cost cutting measures and higher profit margins. It's no surprise and not not a shock that the UFC is continually raising their revenue targets, right? Um, Anton Tabuena, I think. I'm sorry if I'm butchering the name, Anton. A big fan of your work. Uh, John Nash as well. Just recently put out an article on Bloody Elbow talking about could they hit $1 billion in revenue, the UFC, this year. Yes. Yes, they could. Um, it's It's completely feasible to think that they could hit a billion dollars in revenue and their costs aren't rising at a commensurate rate that the revenue is right revenue is going up much higher than costs their costs are rising a little bit sure but they are ufc is as we've talked about really starting to use contender series as this new farming system to bring people in on very low contracts and then bump them up and if you're in that middle range where, okay, you're not going to go on a title run or you've been here for a while, but you haven't made enough of a name for yourself and you're not really getting enough fans interested in you, we're going to cut you and instead bring in more contender series people. I forget what the final number was on uh, how many people were brought in by the contender series that are on the roster so far, but it's it's 20 to 25%. And they're all coming in again on probably 12K, 12K contracts, entry-level contracts. That keeps your costs pretty low because we know pretty much the biggest variable cost for the UFC at this point is fighter pay, especially with having shows at the Apex. That's another one. If you only do big pay-per-views in big arenas where you're basically selling out, then you're getting good live gate, you're, you know, able to offset a lot of the travel costs, the marketing costs, all of that fun stuff, the logistical costs of it. If you're doing it at the apex where you can produce it at a much cheaper fee and still getting people to buy and you've got those VIP experiences which are super expensive and you're still bringing in a solid enough gate because it always seems like those VIP experiences are pretty much sold out or near sold out. And again, some of them are going for four to $7,000 a seat for depending on what you're getting. So you're doing that and you're producing the show there, still making a ton of money on ESPN and you have one or two high ranked fighters that make up the majority of the pay of the card. And then you have a bunch of contender series and lower ranked guys that are all 12K, 12K or 20K, 20K, what have you. You're making giant profit margins. So keeping those costs low, huge factor. Then you got sponsorships. Talked about this last week a little bit. Battle Motors, uh, ZipRecruiter, uh, forget the new energy drink thing that they just signed on. I, I talked about last week. They Sponsorships have surged, surged, where companies are, yep, I want crypto.com. I want to put my logo on fighter kits. Yeah, ZipRecruiter, I want to sponsor a bunch of this stuff. Battle Motors, I want to sponsor the light heavyweight rankings. There are no costs there. I mean, there are, I guess, technically very small administrative costs, 
but the the profit margins of sponsorships are ridiculous. That's why they're sponsorships. You end up with a stupid amount of of profit there, right? The administrative costs for sponsorships is so tiny, is a minor fraction of what you actually get to keep if you're a company that has a sponsorship. So again, you know, it, it's not shocking that they've risen to this level of valuation. I don't think it's that far off. I really don't. And, you know, that says a lot on how Endeavor has run this company, how the UFC and Dana White has continued to run this company. They've run it like a true conglomerate. This happens at firms that I've worked for. This stuff happens all the time. Cost-cutting measures are always happening. You've got, you know, everybody trying to do scrum and and lean and all these things where the idea of it is we do fast work, we pay very little, we only need so many resources, the, the minimum amount of resources, and we get it out and we get a higher profit margin. That's that's a huge part of of business in general. And and you know, the society we live in right now. So the UFC and Endeavor has done a fantastic job of doing that. And that valuation is legit, I would imagine. Here are the consequences of that valuation, though, because there are some, especially with the antitrust lawsuit looming, especially with more cries of fighters saying, hey, I want more pay. And again, I don't think there's enough concrete movement in the unionization discussions or in discussions regarding um, fighters holding out and really getting the UFC to kind of make a move. I, you know, striking, I guess. I guess you'd kind of need a union for that. You would. But big name fighters, right? Trying to renegotiate. That's a better way of putting it and what I'm trying to describe. Yes, a lot of fighters are out there complaining about pay. Yes, a lot of them are trying to renegotiate. But a lot of it's unsuccessful. It just simply is. I mean... Without a union or some type of organization or intervention from the courts, I've said it once, I've said it, I'll say it again, I'll say it a million times. The UFC has no incentive to change things. But if the antitrust lawsuit were to move into a later phase or fighters were to start a union, then you could see some trouble. Because at this point, with that 9.2 billion valuation, the UFC actually has incentive, more incentive than ever, I'd argue, to continue cutting costs and to continue those large profit margins. Sponsorship's gonna be a major player in 2022 for them to beat the numbers that they had this year. Um, I think that's gonna be where they're most likely to raise their revenue. But the thing about capitalism, and not to go on a capitalism rant, please don't take what I'm saying is, is down that rabbit hole, because it's not. But the thing about it is, is that as a company, especially you know Endeavor, who is now a publicly traded company, your incentive is to constantly maximize profits and raise your share price. And when you hit the level that Endeavor has, right, they're going to now start focusing on their other business and that's really where Endeavor overall is gonna try and raise everything. Is they're gonna focus on PBR, they're gonna focus on the other sports properties that they own, uh, the on-location services, the hospitality, uh, the bet, the I forget the name of the company they just bought, but the sports betting company that they just bought to kind of tie in to their Endeavor content, which they're talking about shows and streaming, right? That's where they're going to look to create higher profit margins and raise their revenue. Endeavor will overall. But the UFC is somewhat nearing its peak of what else can we do to keep bringing money in? Sponsorships, again, a big one. You could raise the cost of pay-per-views i guess but even then that's not that's kind of negligible i'm sure that'll happen but i'm sure espn would also get a cut of that since they're the exclusive 
exclusive provider and would probably be more of a ESPN UFC joint decision. Where, you know, is the UFC going to look for continued growth in revenue? And when I look at it, I, I look at sponsorships being paramount, right? That's really what they're going to drive home. Live events, maybe, if they can really raise their fees. Uh, media rights, just as they talked about on the Endeavor earnings call, uh, renegotiating media rights will be a massive one where they will definitely up up that for smaller regions and things outside the U.S. And you can believe when the ESPN deal does come due, which is still several years away, but I mean, they're definitely going to negotiate hard to try and up those significantly. But outside of that, you know, all they can do is continue cutting fighter costs and production costs. And that means more contender series alum, uh, more fight nights at the apex, unless they're able to convince cities to pay a greater fee to bring them there in the name of tourism, in which case, okay, they'll start traveling again, but even then probably going to be hard to do for a lot of the smaller shows that we were getting pre pandemic. Um, you could look at new shows, right? Like ultimate fighter type shows, but those haven't been proven to be big money makers at this point. So you're, you're kind of running up against the wall here. Uh, merchandise. Sure. You can kind of push that, but it, it's, it will come a point where they have to enter new markets. Um, I'm sure India is on the list. Uh, Africa obviously is a huge one that they're talking about going into next year, rightfully so, with um, you know champions of Nganu, Usman, Adesanya. But it's still right now. You know they're they're kind of reaching their domestic limit of of revenue growth outside of sponsorships and some other things. That's not to say that they won't continue growing their revenue. I'm sure they can get a billion and then over a billion, so on and so forth. But they're definitely closer to the peak than the bottom is what I'm really getting at here, right? Uh, and so when that happens, the closer you get to the peak revenue and the, the higher and higher that gets, you have to maintain all of the pieces that are allowing you to reach that revenue. So the UFC is now more incentivized than ever to cut people that are kind of middling or not making title runs or not really drawing the numbers they like because it helps them cut costs more and it helps keep that going. If you had an antitrust lawsuit outcome where even if the UFC was not meant to pay but contracts were limited or they were meant to pay a certain amount and may have to raise fighter pay or a union forms, right? and they're kind of forced to negotiate with a fighter's union, that's going to severely hurt them. I mean, it's going to kind of cripple those revenues at this point because they're, again, that valuation will not last if that happens because as they've grown, they've also taken on more debt because that is also part of what the UFC does. It's, it's what all companies do. And so the, the closer they get to the peak of their all-time revenue, which again, they keep breaking. They're almost certainly gonna break it again this year, but eventually it will peak, or at least plateau for a bit. The closer they get to that, then you have to keep all of the underlying pieces in place, which gets more and more complicated and gets harder to do. It's why no company generally ever stays at the top forever, right? Now that can, that you have companies that reach the top or stay on top of a particular industry and stay there for a long, 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 long time, but eventually they start to show cracks. And even if they're on the top and let's say they're beating all the competitors, which the UFC would still clearly be the number one promotion by a long shot, even if they saw a revenue dip and couldn't quite get to the levels they had before, they, they again, they've maximized what they can do shareholder-wise which is always a concern because then shareholders are like, well, wait a minute, I want to make more money. I want to have my stock price go up. I want my investment to return me more money. So what can we do to change it up? And then they look for innovative ideas that sometimes are terrible, but they've got to do something. They can't just stay there. So suffice to say, Endeavor has, has been given new life by the UFC who has been on an absolute tear. 
absolute tear this year, past several years, right? And that 9.2 valuation, 9.2 billion valuation is fantastic, but it gets harder to keep everything in place. And it puts more pressure on the UFC if you have fighters being more and more outspoken about their pay. You have the NLRB claims, which is looks like will be reviewed. I, I think so. At least that's not 100% sure, but Leslie Smith's NLRB claim, I know she talked about having it reviewed. I believe that is going to happen. Um, you have the antitrust lawsuit, which is moving forward. One of these days, we'll get a class certification notice from the judge, and we'll, we'll push it along, finally get to talk about that again. But you know, this is becomes more and more precarious for the UFC and Endeavor as a whole if these forces gain more ground and start to, you know, cause more issue. Because as they've grown their revenue, they keep growing their debt. And yes, the UFC has also paid down debt, Endeavor has as well, but it gets harder to maintain this more complex thing, right? takes a lot longer to build than it does to destroy, especially the bigger thing you build. That's just how it works. So that is the ramifications of that valuation. It's fantastic work by Endeavor and the UFC team from a business perspective. You can't do any better than that, really. But it, it also becomes, you gotta keep a closer eye on these threats, these external threats, right? Talking SWOT analysis, big threats with the antitrust lawsuit, the, uh, two antitrust lawsuits, rather, the fighters being outspoken about pay, mainstream media kind of taking a little bit more attention and slowly making their way into the sport a little bit more, and they can generate enough noise to cause issue. You've, you know, lots of threats out there as the UFC continues to grow. So I guess we'll, we'll just watch with bated breath, but don't be surprised if the UFC again, keeps cost cutting, keeps their profit margins up, and they keep an eye out for those threats and put a little bit more pressure in various ways, right, to not not have fighters unionize or have the antitrust lawsuit go the wrong way. I, I don't think DC telling fighters, like, hey, you should go after the belt, not money. I, you know... Company man who once talked about getting his payday against Brock Lesnar and how important that was. And all of a sudden he's turned around saying, oh, no, fighters, you go for the belt. Mm, yeah, you'll see. You'll see instances like that. I think we'll see a little bit more indirect pressure from the UFC to make sure that those threats are at bay. That's what I would assume. All right. Next topic that we need to discuss is one that I take no joy in bringing up yet once again. And one that I feel I will continue to bring up periodically because we need to talk about it. Um, there was a post that I saw out there. I believe it was Instant Combat or Global Combat on Instagram. I was on Reddit, made its way through Twitter. Um, actually, let me just look it up right now while we're on the while we're on the pod. Um, yeah. You really, when, you, when you're looking at this post, which essentially says that the main card of the UFC made less in salary than Caleb Plant, who fought Canelo Alvarez, right? It's frustrating because... it's Okay, it's Instagram and it's Comba Talk. Like combat and talk with just one T. And it says $3.6 million, whole, whole UFC card, $10 million, Caleb Plant. Now, the thing about this is, is that it's a true, true statement in a way. The number is off, which we're going to talk about in here a second. But yes, Caleb Plant did make more than the entire UFC card. I would imagine that is correct. Looking at the numbers, the few numbers that I kind of know or that I've confirmed with other journalists slash sources. Yeah, that lines up. Um, but the 3.6 million number that's out there is just complete, complete trash. 
it is from one site that constantly puts out salaries and sometimes pay-per-view buys, although I think they've walked that back because other sources have put out pay-per-view buys that have just been like completely different. They're like, oh. But it is a source that is one website where a guy keeps saying like, hey, these are our best estimates based on what we knew was the last fight on their contract and here's what everybody's making. And they're just made up. They are from, they are using estimates from disclosures that are, you know, forever ago, pre-pandemic pretty much. And it, it, it just is not accurate at all. And again, somebody posts this on Reddit, somebody posts this on Twitter or talks about it on Twitter. It's, you gotta be, you gotta be careful. Any type of salaried information First thing you need to do, if anyone is saying they know what somebody made salary-wise for a particular fight, is you've got to look at first the source, right? Is it a fighter themselves? Is it, you know, Cyril Ghosn or Francis Ngannou? Um, I believe Francis was the one talking about fighter pay, right? So he said how much he made for one of his title fights um, and or for his, or no, it was Cyril Ghosn who talked about the interim title fight and how much he made. That's right. So, yes, if it's coming from the fighter directly, yeah, you could probably trust them. They might be lying, sure, but I doubt it. I don't know why they would necessarily, um, unless they're a diehard company, man. But no, I mean, if it's coming from a fighter, probably safe. If it's coming from any other source, right, a manager of a fighter could also maybe fall into that bucket but we know how managers are aligned and they tend to be more aligned with the promotion than fighters so you know there's all that but um if it's coming from other any other source than the fighter's mouth directly saying i got paid this much just first thing you need to do is just look and see hey does the commission did the commission ever release salaries right if they were in this state and keep in mind that if it's UFC fighter, which we're talking about right here, that the UFC has kind of essentially blocked all of their disclosures by saying it's trade secrets and kind of putting that through in certain commissions, which I believe all the other commissions are res respecting, if I understand that correctly. So... You're, you're not going to get legitimate salary information. Like, those days are gone. We used to get disclosed payouts. That was a common thing. Not that long ago, but those days are gone. So, when somebody says, oh, the whole card made $3.6 million, where are you getting that number? Well, you look and you do some research, and it comes from the same source who is using the last disclosed payouts of these, these fighters from forever ago. And I know for a fact at least two of them are wrong to uh, two of the disclosed payouts that they talked about are, are completely just way off i'm sure there are more i don't have that many sources but i have enough that i know at least two were wrong so what are we doing right if you see anyone talking about how much a particular fighter made on a fight night or a pay-per-view and it's not the fighter themselves just say no immediately question it and most times people are going to be like oh it's i got it from here and then you follow the links and you know there's a couple of small very small sites that aggregate a lot of this stuff um combat talk is one of them and <laughs> you do your research and up oh, there it is and here's the disclaimer these are estimates of best note yeah it's bs complete bs so please for the love of god before you talk about fighter salary and think you know what a particular fighter makes, just research it a little bit, because you probably don't. And I'm not saying that you can't technically guess it right, because a broken clock is right twice a day, but I mean, you're, you're really just making stuff up. And it undermines your argument, right? I, I understand the point of that post was to say that Caleb Plant made more than the whole UFC card, and that's true, and that is, a glaring point that should be brought up but if you bring in the wrong numbers that are just made up that allows detractors or people who are going to defend the ufc's pay for fighters to say oh well these numbers are just bs you don't know what they make 
And it easily allows someone like Dana White or, or a UFC executive to rebuff those numbers and be like, what? You said it was that much? No, I know for a fact this person made this much. There's no way that was the correct number. And make it appear as, oh, we were wrong. So that means they made, oh, of course, the whole thing is then thrown out, baby with the bathwater type scenario. You're, you're giving the other side ammunition. If you're going to make a point, make sure that you don't falsify <laughs> some of the numbers in the point you're trying to make even if the overall point is still correct, and that Caleb Plant made more money than the UFC main card. Or the whole UFC card, rather. Yeah, that is probably accurate. I can't say for sure, because I don't know all the numbers, but seems like it would lean that way. But yeah, and I know you guys listening to this are, are you know, smart enough business people or like this stuff enough, right, that you... You get it, but just make sure to tell other people too, because it's easy. I've I've seen some shocking people retweet things or say things about fighter salary, but then I've had to kind of message them and be like, hey, like actually these numbers are, and and they've you know, in a respectful way, right? Because it's easy. You get caught up in it. You see something, and you're like, what? Like I mean, that's a that's there for sticker shock to make you look at it and evoke a reaction. That's why you have that picture of Usman and Plant side by side with the numbers that that's the entire point but you've got to check the sources that goes for anything in life too guys just so you know there's a lot of news out there just just dig a little bit deeper into it trust me it'll save you a lot of grief um but yeah yeah so if you see salaries out there do me a favor and tell people that they're probably quoting wrong information double check the source and if they are quoting wrong information tell them that because this needs to stop. It keeps happening. Fake pay-per-view numbers, although that's mostly gone thanks to Sports Business Journal reporting actual numbers or es- actual estimates, rather, uh, more frequently. But still, lots of fake salaries. Lots and lots of fake salaries. And people retweeting it and talking about it. And it's just, it's all BS. Stop. Just don't believe it. Just don't believe it. All right, guys. Final thing for you today is something that came across my Twitter feed, um, looked into it a little bit, and it it is real. And it talks about how, you know, Joe Silva used to write into the Wrestling Observer newsletter, uh, one that's hosted by Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez, and I guess would write in to Dave and, you know, talk about stuff like a a reader of any publication would before he became Joe Silver, the matchmaker. Uh, the excerpt excerpt I saw was from, let's see. Uh, let me see this account is at far from heaven, which is P H A R R. And then from heaven, uh, that account. But I mean, it basically talks about how, in, in this, these letters that Silva sent in, he criticizes UFC 9 um, and complains about a bunch of stuff. Uh, but most importantly, says, uh, says these words, which are, the UFC is going to go down the tubes if they continue to expect fighters to sign exclusive contracts for peanuts. Now, obviously, this didn't come to fruition and things turned around. But I wanted to bring this up because for those of you that have not followed the antitrust lawsuit or it's been a while because it really has been a while, the documents that came out about Joe Silva's matchmaking policy and his formulaic way of paying out fighters, they were well aware of how much the fighters were making revenue-wise, right? Um, they, they touted publicly a couple times, 50%, uh, we're, oh, we're like MLS we're you know, all that stuff. I believe one of the Fertitas said that at some point, but internally through investor presentations, they state, look, we're going to cap fighter pay at 20%. It's never going to get higher than that. That's how we make these big profit margins. Joe Silva was a major part of that in his negotiations. It was pretty much formulaic pretty much had separate tiers where once you had so many fights, if you were re-signed, you went up to the next tier. 
so on and so forth. You had a couple of, you know, it's a couple of changes here and there of a grand or two, depending on the, the relationships with managers or agents. Um, you had some interesting email exchanges where Silva was, you know, not the greatest guy in the world uh, and, and was, you know, some stories that are out there uh, that I'm, I'm sure a lot of media personalities could tell you about with Silva kind of, you know, matchmaking in a way that he saw fit that wasn't always to the best advantage to certain fighters, I guess. Um, and that's, I mean, those are more rumors though, so I can't really comment too much on those, on, on the validity of them. But again, through the emails we saw in the antitrust lawsuit, which we have verified, Silva knows the UFC fighters are getting paid very little. Yet, before he was part of the UFC and he wrote in to one, he talks about how it's going to go down the tubes if they keep expecting exclusive contracts for peanuts. Why would someone do that, right? It, it shows you the mentality of the company from even before Endeavor bought them. And from a business perspective, don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Right? If you're looking at pure business, not talking any moral on whether it's right or wrong, uh, any of that type of stuff, but if you are looking at the pure, ruthless business side of it, it shows that even their own people could see from the outside that some of the this fighter pay was, was at least lower and lower than they should expect for exclusive contracts, right? It's important to recognize that because you have a lot of people out there who defend fighter pay tooth and nail and say all these things, whatever, for the UFC. And, you know, you can find them out there. Some of you who are watching may be those people. If you are defending UFC fighter pay, you can say it's good business for the UFC. You can say it's it's the right business call. Yes. You can, because obviously, as we just talked about, UFC is now valued at $9.2 billion. But you cannot say that the UFC or people within the UFC were unaware about how much money fighters were making. Some people are, sure, but this just, again, is another highlight, a bright spotlight on the, some of these things I've seen where people are, are ignorant about it being like, well, you know, they don't know, or they're just negotiating or whatever. It's like, yeah, they're negotiating with Joe Silva, who talks about how little fighters are paid before he signed on. And then we know from antitrust documents, yes, pay rose compared to the original UFC, sure, but commensurate with company growth, well, not so much. And from a business perspective, that's how you get these crazy profit margins. If you're maximizing shareholder profits, if you're doing what's best for the investor and the executive team, this is how you do it, right? Brilliantly played, brilliantly done. A lot of people hate him for it, but it's ruthless and it worked. It worked extremely well. They now may have to face consequences in court over it. We'll see where that goes. But again, in my opinion, right now, they're standing in a good position based on everything that's happened with the antitrust lawsuit so far. And they're valued at $9.2 billion. That's cutthroat business. That's good. But you cannot tell me from a business perspective that's good. But you cannot tell me that they were unaware. You cannot put ignorance into this this situation. And I've seen far too many people say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's all a negotiation. It all depends on what they're willing to fight for and all this stuff. It's like, mm, here is the former matchmaker who was pretty much the head of all those negotiations, who from the get-go before he even joined the company pointed out that UFC was paying fighters this little. If you think it was all a negotiation and that, oh, fighters sign on the dotted line, but it's how hard their agents worked for, what they were able to bring to the table and all that. And if you think that mentality doesn't even permeate up to bigger superstars, 
like John Jones and Anderson Silva and GSP and Conor McGregor and all that, and if you think that that company mentality doesn't make its way all the way up to those guys as well, well, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, It is what it is. But you cannot claim ignorance here. You just can't. At least from the UFC's side. Not saying it's bad business, because again, it's actually fantastic business. But you cannot claim, from any standpoint, that the UFC, people within the UFC, didn't know about fighter pay, or they're trying their best, or that it's a true negotiation. Because there's a lot of evidence pointing the other way around. Right? So, at least back then. Maybe it's changed. We don't have emails. We don't have negotiations that we're sitting in on. Maybe it has changed. I doubt it personally. I very much doubt it personally, but who knows? But it's important for me to just shine a light on that story because, yeah, just, yeah. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Five Business Podcast. Appreciate you guys watching. If you're on YouTube, uh, make sure you hit the like, subscribe, bell notification. Keep those comments coming. It was a great discussion uh, last week. Love chatting with you guys about the stuff. So make sure to drop some comments on there as well. Uh, if you're listening on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, what have you, always appreciate it. Feel free to drop me a line at AllDayOJ on Twitter. Not really on Instagram. You can hit me up there, but I may not reply to you for a long time because I'm rarely logged in. Um, Love talking about this stuff with you guys. Loved the conversation uh, last week on the comments of the video. I don't mind being wrong, too. And I was this this one time. It won't happen again, trust me. But <laughs> enjoy the holiday week if you are celebrating Thanksgiving. If you're not, uh, enjoy the week anyway and just have a great week. And with that in mind, uh, get money and get some turkey and gravy, y'all. Gobble, gobble. <laughs>